Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45. Joined in the studio with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and, of course, Jack and Joe in the engineering booth. How are you guys doing? Doing all right? Doing good. Yeah, microphones aren't working over there, but they're doing good. How you doing, Stas? Good. Yeah, Nastasha is trying to find someone who's willing to move uh, the crap out of our uh, studio area in Brooklyn, in the back of Milk Bar this Commissary, Friday. This to, Friday. to our new space on 54 Eldridge Street, which until Eater actually showed up, they did not believe that we were not trying to open another bar there. Yeah. And when they showed up, we're like, here's one desk, here's another desk, look, a third desk. And they're like, oh, so it's not going to be, it. and we're like, no, 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 it's, it's our, it's our it's, you know, it's Booker and Dax Equipment Company, it's our test, our test place. But anyway... Turns out that movers here in New York, unlike when you move it yourself, which is what Nastasha and I had to do last time, uh, make you put everything in a box. It's, it's equipment. How the hell do you put a big piece of equipment in a box? Am I supposed to just go get giant like washing machine boxes to no, put everything? No, they said, or shrink wrap it. So we use that like... Or shrink wrap it? Yeah. What is shrink wrapping doing? I think you cover it in plastic. And but how is that helpful other than I get to destroy the earth a little more? Their their trucks. They don't want to they don't, scratch the trucks with the equipment, the insides of the trucks. They don't want to scratch the inside of a yeah. moving truck. Right. They, yeah. With stuff it's that weird. they're moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is happening in the real life? Mm-hmm. This is what's really happening? Yes. Okay, then. Hey, our mic works, and we're doing well. Yeah? Nice. <laughs> yeah. Good. Oh, strong. Good. I was a little worried about you. I was pretty sure that there was still air in the booth, though, and that you were breathing. <laughs> Hey, do you know about our fundraising party? Can I, I shamelessly plug that right we're now? We're doing it, are we, Jack? You yeah, must, you are. You must uh, plug away. Yeah, you're you're uh, you're doing drinks. I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. El, nice. El Bujo Mezcal, and uh, we've got Absolute. We've got a whole bunch of stuff. September 9th at Roberta's from five to eight p.m. It's our first fundraiser. How much are tickets? One hundred fifty. And and uh, where do they purchase said tickets? That is heritageradionetwork.eventbrite.com. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And we'll take some of our techniques and put your money where your mouth is with our beverage, right? We've got Gramercy Tavern and Del Posto. I think Brooks is doing desserts. and um, You back, wrangled back Brooks 40, into doing it? Wrangled Bro- yeah, Brooks will be there. Nice. Yep. Back 40 West, Shauna Pacifico, uh, Inside Park, St. Bart's. Uh, inside, yeah, Inside Park at St. Bart's. A bunch of other chefs. It'll be really cool. Nice. Nice. And it's here at, at the at the Roberta's Pizzeria? Yep. In the backyard. Yeah. So if you've never made the trek out to Brooklyn, now's your chance. Now's your chance to cross that river. You can meet us. And maybe Indie Jesus may be working the event. Oh, I'm just yeah, putting that out there. I don't know. Oh, you, you, now you have to make it happen, Jack. I might have to make that happen. Yeah, you know, I'll see what, what strings I can pull. It's not an easy get. Yeah, Nastasha, you're, you're going to come to the gig, right? Yes. Yeah, so you can come see Nastasha. And, like, I think everyone should wear their best hipster outfit to come <laughs> yeah, visit Nastasha yeah. at the... And you at, can get pictures with me and Indie Jesus. If Andy Jesus actually shows up, right? Well, he works on Sundays. That's what we. It's he's anti anti Jesus. He's working on a Sunday, but <laughs> no. The, uh, you got to get your 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 Bible straight first You're not of all. To work on Sunday. That's supposed to work, but like one of the things that if you read the if you read the um, 
kind of, uh, you know, the apocryphal gospels, like one of the things Jesus used to get in trouble for all the time was healing people on the Sabbath. Aren't you supposed to say it in Jersey? Well, no, they, they, those gospels never made it into, <laughs> into, into Jersey speak. But, uh, yeah, so he used to do things like, you know, cure people on the Sabbath. And that's one of the things he got in trouble for. Hmm. You know, curing people at work. Work. You think that stuff just happens, curing people? It's work. Anyway, okay. Um... Let me catch some stuff from before that I missed from a couple weeks ago. Barry Moncasey wrote in, because I don't think I got this. Uh, question on Twitter. Clearly, I'm overcooking, or people are overcooking shrimp in a shrimp boil. I didn't talk about this, did I, Seth? I don't think so. Uh, shrimp, sausage, corn, onion, potato, garlic, and zatarain spice. Uh, perfect sous vide timing recipe. Did I talk about this? I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember whether I talked about it or not. But I think I, you might have. Did I? Really? I feel like you might have. Wait, don't cook shrimp sous vide. Just cook all the parts separately. Perfectly, and then recombine them at the end. Yeah, yeah, you're right, I did. I talked about shrimp shells. Delicious, delicious shrimp shells. That's right. Yeah, okay. All right. All right, Barry, I got you covered. But I know this I did not mention. Pavlov at Pav1Lov, or Pav1Ov, on the Twitter, sent in a picture to us of uh, how he cooked 25,000 lobsters in a five-day period at a festival in Maine. Using something that looked like a steam, giant kind of steam cleaner, huge pieces of equipment. And his exact quote is, I felt bad until I ate them. (laughs) Hopefully he did not eat all 25,000. The most I've ever eaten in one day is 10. Uh, And uh, that was the same day I found out I was allergic to cherries. So they thought it was lobsters for a long time that I was allergic to until cherry season came around the next year and sent me to the hospital again. Mm crazy right mm-hmm. nutty anyways uh so i had something else to say about that oh yeah when i was a kid check this out for any of you that um i don't know clean aircraft equipment for a living there used to be an, in oshkosh every year in oshkosh wisconsin there's what's called a fly-in where all all the kind of experimental aircraft lunatics from all over everywhere and also the old warbird uh nutties and everything show up and they fly in and oshkosh airport is for that couple of days the busiest airport in the world and you go there and uh, my dad used to fly seaplanes uh, a lot, so we used to go to the seaplane party, which was a little off the way because you had to have a lake. And those guys had a giant like brat, beer brats in, in 55-gallon drums and corn that they would cook in the steam cleaners that they would use to steam clean parts, like giant steam cleaned corn. That's what I used to eat as a kid. Maybe that's part of what influenced me to get to use dumb equipment to uh, cook with. Maybe. What do you think? Yeah, possible, right? Okay. Now, on to current questions. Uh, hi, Dave, Nastasha, and Jack. Shout out to Indy Jesus. And I'm going to have to add the shout out to Joe. Remember, guys, give the shout out to Joe. He, he is a singer in a – he's the front man of some sort of like hardcore punk band. True or false? True. Why have we not heard any of the music on, on the radio program? Uh, maybe one of these days. So if you don't give him a shout out, he is going, he, he is going to come find you. Pretty much, right? I'm I'm ext- I'm extremely scary person as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you probably don't know him unless you're here in the studio with us. I mean, you might know him separately, but in other words, yeah. You know, odds are you don't. And he's a he's a scary man. He'll come find you. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. You should give him a shout out. That's all. Okay. So Eddie Shepard writes in. I have a quick question, and also below a free uh, well free for me, <laughs> not for you. Anyway, kidding. Uh, a link to the copy of my ebook. Um, okay, as a long-time listener and having uh, asked the odd question on the show before, I was hoping it was okay to ask a question slightly away from the tech side of things and more on aesthetics and subjectivity. Uh, I wonder to what extent uh, you thought about the presentation of food affected the experience of eating it, whether it is something you see as critical to a dish, and if there are any examples or anecdotes you have relating to food either looking horrible and tasting amazing or vice versa, beautifully presented but let down in flavor. I personally think that the setting you're in and the aesthetics of a dish can potentially have a big psychological influence on your enjoyment of the food 
food, but also the flavors first and foremost. If I can make a delicious dish look nice, then great, I will. But if altering its look uh, compromises flavor, I wouldn't. I wonder what your thoughts might be and also if there's anything you might favor stylistically in food uh, presentation. Okay, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think there is a very famous uh, Spanish chef, a uh, very famous mercurial Spanish chef, actually, that uh, Nils and I were doing. I think it was Nils and I. might have been even before Nils was it. No, I think Nils was there. Anyway, it was this huge event uh, we had at the French Culinary Institute years and years ago, and uh, all the bigwigs were coming, like Ferran and, and uh, Juan Roca and all these guys. This is n- none of those guys. Another very famous mercurial Spanish chef. And uh, not that Juan Roca is actually not. He's like this totally mellow guy. He, he didn't yell at anyone the entire time. The, man, the man's a complete uh, – he's, he's very um, – he's a, he's a gentleman, Juan Roca. I, someday I will get to go to his restaurant. Um, anywho, and Jordy too, the brother, pastry chef, very nice people. Anyway, um, the – so this guy – uh, is well known for kind of like hyper presentation with you know like lots of tweezers and whatnot uh, you know tiny like you know early on uh, adopter of the of like the micro mini micro 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 green tininess right and um, he literally said during his demonstration and it's stuck in my head forever that uh, it is not only important for the food to look good it must taste good also and this stuck in my brain and I've not been able to pry it free because it's exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. It is important like it's not only important that the food tastes good, it's important that it looks good too. That is a true statement, right? But um, I kind of my problem with food that's for presentation only is I think it leads to especially we're in an era right now where um you know, a lot of food work is done on the internet, it's done in books, it's done on television programs, and it's done in demonstrations. And so uh, there's a lot of work that's done that um, where you can tell that it was done for the look and not necessarily for the, for the, um, for the taste. Like I call it you know, cooking for demonstration. It's like you specifically make it so that it looks good in photos or in books or in, uh, in demos. And I mean, I'm not saying you should shy away from the presentation, but that's why in a demo, I I think it's important to give taste out so that people actually know that, you know, what you're focused on is cooking and the flavor. Now, I think that, you know, look, if you're cooking at home, it's it's one thing. It it has to look appetizing. I don't really do a lot of plated work at home except for I I used to on special occasions, but I don't really do it at home. At home, it's it's more about, you know, something that looks appetizing but, you know, in, in a home style. But when you're doing a demo or a dish or a cocktail, I think it's very important to have to have it look enticing and appetizing or in a cocktail scenario that have the pre- the presentation of making it be something that um, whets the person's appetite for what you're making uh, and that looks good or looks compelling and um, there are dishes that obviously the your enjoyment of them is incredibly augmented by how they look. Things can be enchanting, captivating uh, just in their look and then um, that makes it makes an already good tasting thing taste better uh but you know nothing is worse than something that they've obviously spent a billion years making it look great and there's no flavor to it or or the flavors uh clash and they don't work i mean you've had that happen Stas, right yes do you enjoy that no <laughs> she's not paying any attention okay i, I got this guy to move our stuff i think oh well okay so so this, kind of- 
All right, so Nastasha's not paying attention to what I'm saying during the radio show, but did, in fact, find a place, a guy that's going to move our stuff, so kudos there. Uh, now, there's another side to it, which is also true, and you allude to in, in your question, and that is that I have things that we have made that are freaking delicious, like delicious, great, and yet I won't ever serve them. Why? Because they're hideously ugly. You know, like a drink that looks like a murky brown mass and, and not like brown in a good sort of whiskey way, like just nasty. And so, yes, there are there are situations where, you know, looks trump how good something tastes just because I, I won't be able to get it past someone's lips. Same way, like I can make you a piece of chicken that looks like it's still bloody, cooked through all the way. No one will eat it. Why? Because it's visually repellent to them. And so I think both uh, both are important, but I think you know, you're going to steer yourself right if you focus on flavor first and then uh, after that, like, you know, like how can this presentation be um, best best achieved? Right, I mean that, that's my feeling. Now, the second thing we have in from Eddie is Eddie just has a new book available, I believe, exclusively on the iPad through your uh, through your iTunes, and it's called uh, Modernist. Uh, what's it called? Modernist Vegetarian, right? Mo- Modernist Vegetarian. Let me look at the exact title of the book because I downloaded it. Uh, Modernist Vegetarian, right? By Eddie Shepard, and uh, so it's it's. I read it. I read. Yeah, I didn't read it fully. Because I only got it this morning, but I, I looked through all the recipes and uh, a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting recipes. Some that you can use without a lot of heavy duty equipment. Some that require a lot of heavy duty equipment. Um, but you know, very well, very well, clean photograph. A lot of interesting stuff. And I think you know, one of the first times I've seen someone exclusively try to do a modern a modern take on uh, a strictly vegetarian. So good, kudos. Everyone, you know, should go check it out. You can get a free sample on the iTunes. Uh, sent to your iPad and then decide whether you want to pay the paltry meager price of I think it's like six ninety nine. So it's not a giant, it's not a giant investment. Um, uh, one thing he uses quite a bit actually that I haven't used. I'm ashamed to say it. We haven't experimented with it. Is uh, the Pure Coat B seven ninety, which is um, you know it's something from National Starch and uh, can be used to make like films and leathers and glasses and stuff. And we haven't really played with that. I don't think too much, uh, Stas. Maybe I should. You know, I hate it when someone brings something uh, out like this, and and then I'm like, man, I haven't, I shouldn't have used that more. Man, there it is. So we'll, we'll try to get some practice in with the Pure Coat B790, and uh, we appreciate that uh, you gave me a uh, a shout out on uh, a couple of the techniques in the book. Uh, one thing is on your methyl cellulose. I'd like to know. Are you using F50? It looks like you're using F50. Remember to always call out the brands of the methyl cell that you are using. All right. Uh, this is a shout-out to uh, Michael in Oakland. I still have your leukemia puree problem on my mind, but I'm going to wait to answer until I get back from the Columbia because I'm going to mess with uh, leuke- leukemia variants while I'm down there and figure out really good solutions for you. And with that, let's go to our first commercial break. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So I could love you twice as much as I do I'd have four loving arms to embrace you For eyes to idolize you each time You're listening to I Wish I Were Twins by Plexophonic What couldn't four lips do When four ears hear you say that I'm yours I wish that I were twins You great big babykins So I could love you White Oak Pastures is a 146-year-old multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meats that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, 
ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. I wish that I were twins, you great big baby kins, so I could love you twice as much as I do. I'd have four loving arms to embrace you, four eyes to idolize you each time I face you. With two hearts and oh, welcome back to Cooking Issues. Okay, uh, Matt writes in, hey Dave and Stars. Uh, I recently bought a centrifuge on the eBay, and I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions or resources for cool things I can do with it. There are a few ideas in modernist cuisine, but I want to take it further. Also, do I need to buy special bottles for the rotor, or will a uh, basic mason jar, etc., do the trick? I see there are centrifuge bottles for sale around the web, but they're expensive, and I hate to lay down that kind of cash if I can go cheaper. Any thoughts? Matt. Okay, do not put a mason jar in there. Do not. Put a mason jar into your centrifuge. A couple of things I need to know uh, before, uh, before I go on. Congratulations, first of all, on uh, the centrifuge purchase. Um, the, I, I, you know, I, I use a centrifuge every day, uh, and we do mainly juice clarification with it. You're going to need to go out and buy uh, the enzyme Pectinex Ultra SPL, which is available at modernistpantry.com. Even though, like, are they, 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 what, what's the story? They, they, no more love for us, huh? Anyways. Anyway, you can buy Pectinex Ultra SPL at modernistpantry.com, and you're going to need that with your centrifuge um, to do a lot of the clarification work, assuming that you have a lower-speed centrifuge. Remember, the guys at Modernist Cuisine have a centrifuge that can easily do like 48,000 times the force of gravity. Most likely, yours doesn't do that. If it does do that, you definitely shouldn't think about putting a mason jar anywhere near it. Second thing is, is the centrifuge, you need to make sure that the rotor and buckets are in good shape, that they're not dented or messed up. Thirdly, you need to clean the hell out of that centrifuge. You need to bleach the hell out of that centrifuge, and you need to take the rotor and pressure cook it to get rid of any sort of biological craziness that might be going on, and then bleach the hell out of it again. I think that large amounts of bleach soaking will kill almost everything. I need to... I need better information on how to properly sanitize something against prions, for instance. But you, if you don't know what was in the centrifuge, you have real problems. Second of all, I don't know what kind – like again, what kind of centrifuge you have. But um, the, the bottles that go into centrifuge rotors are uh, – they're tough for a reason. They're going to undergo a lot of stress. I spin – directly in my buckets, right? Although I'm the only guy that does it. Everyone else is like, really? You spend directly in the buckets? I'm like, yes, I spend directly in the buckets. Um, Never let detergent touch your buckets. You know what I mean? Because the detergent can uh, negatively affect the aluminum uh, buckets. Uh, I have purchased the expensive centrifuge bottles, and I have found plastic... Uh, bottles that work in centrifuge rotors, but they tend to fail somewhat. So like uh, back at the FCI, I had a super speed centrifuge that I could do like 22,000 times the force of gravity in safely, and we used to use uh, ketchup squeezies in uh, in that thing. And the ketchup squeezies, they worked okay, right, Mm Stas? But every once in a while, they would collapse, and then they would collapse, and then guess what? They've collapsed. Um, So... It, you know, it, it's a matter of be careful. Go on to cookingissues.com. Look at the centrifuge section specifically related to safety. You need to be safe with a centrifuge. You need to balance the centrifuge before you spin it. And don't put anything in there that can break and fly apart 
And uh, because there's a couple of things, right? There's not just like the broken glass in your centrifuge. If you break something in the centrifuge and then you go unbalanced, then your centrifuge becomes unbalanced, which then becomes a secondary danger. So you have to really make sure that everything is okay and in tip-top shape. On the notion of centrifuge, though, so here's the thing. I think I mentioned this on the radio show a couple of times is that when I, whenever I go do uh, demos, they're, they're always like, yo, come do a tech demo. And I'm like, okay, what can you get me? Can you get me a centrifuge? And they're always like, no. Unless it's Japan. Unless it's Japan. They park high at Tokyo, baller. Ball. Even Nastasha, by the way, Nastasia does not like basically thinks that everyone is like a useless moron, p- pretty much. Right? Yes. Yeah, I mean that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so for her, especially people that help us out in demos. No offense to those of you that have helped us out in demos, <laughs> but like, uh, but like the Japanese guys at the Park Hyatt, it was the only time I've ever heard her say, "Man, these guys are on top of things." They're good people. They're that good people. It, yeah. They're good people. Yeah, yeah. And like <laughs> for Nastasha, like that means you walk on water. That's like, that's it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're like. Yeah, you know, that's it. Okay, so uh, so centrifuge is tough to get. Now, here's the reason why centrifuge is tough to get. They're big, they're expensive, and they're not yet uh, in uh, a lot of kitchens, so not a lot of kitchen people have access to them. Now, the centrifuge I use at the Booker and Dax and at the lab and at the school, they're all basically the same unit. The one that Wiley has, same style unit. Um, most people are using... You know, Chad uh, and uh, Christy, Chad Solomon, Christy Pope, same same kind. It's three liters benchtop, does 4,000 times the force of gravity, right? And that's what I've always called the sweet spot in centrifuges. Uh, now, that is unreasonable uh, for uh, most people at home because it's too large, it's too expensive, and you're not going to use it that much, right? That's clearly in kind of the divorce slash breakup with your significant other for bringing it into the house kind of range of things to do is to bring a centrifuge like that into the house. Even I do not have one of those suckers in my house. And I have pushed very far with weird crap in my house before. There is a centrifuge I just purchased to take with me to Columbia that I'm going to run some tests on this week and see whether or not it's okay. It's available Amazon Prime for under 200 bucks. And it, it only does, I think, 1,300 times the force of gravity, but I've done some initial experiments with Pectinex Ultra SPL and other clarifying aids, and I think I can get it to work at that uh, level. Not as well and not as fast as the one that I have at, at Booker and Dax, but pretty good. Also, uh, the cool thing, I mean, the centrifuge is very small, so it really does a small amount uh, per spin. It does 120 uh, milliliters per spin, which is a little, a little over four ounces. And this is useless for a bar because, please, four ounces? Come on. But uh, for testing at home and for making a couple of drinks for you know you and your family, uh, this could be a viable thing to at least let you play with centrifugation and what you can do with it. And so I'll be testing this week the hundred and eighty dollar um, you know you know one hundred and twenty milliliter centrifuge. It weighs ten pounds and is less than a foot on each side, so could be good, right? I'll let you guys know next week whether it works or not. I hope it does because otherwise I'm out 200 bucks. Uh, but wouldn't that send be cool? Back. Oh, yeah. See, Nastasha's really good with this stuff. Mm-hmm. This is why I have her around. Be like, just send it back if you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but this way we can always have one of those things when we go do demos. Yeah? How much does it weigh? 10 pounds. Mm. It's like nothing compared to the crap we carry around. Mm-hmm. I'll carry the... If you can strap it to my back, I'll carry the world. Okay. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, Rob uh, Trepaz writes in about uh, a couple of things. Carpano uh, and Antica Formula Vermouth, which is one of our favorites. Anyway, uh, we use it. We use the hell out of it at the bar, even though it's uh, absurdly expensive. Not absurdly expensive, but it's not cheap. Right? Right. Okay. Uh, I recently discovered uh, Carpano Antica Formula Vermouth and have been enjoying uh, Manhattans with it like never before. My problem is that by the ounce, it takes a long time to go through a bottle. You should drink more, Rob. That's the problem. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not advocating that. Okay. Um, the bottle is kept in my refrigerator with a vacuum van stopper, but uh, it takes on an oxidized flavor towards the end of the bottle and takes up a lot of room. How would you recommend I rebottle it? I have a bottle capper for glass bottles and a CO2 tank available. Should other lower proof uh, liquors like Lillet, Coqui Americano, Dubonnet, or Aperol be stored in similar quantities or under refrigeration? Uh, and then there's a separate question. Let me deal with this one first. Okay. This is an excellent question. Uh, vermouth definitely does oxidize, and uh, this is a problem we come across in the bar all the time. I wouldn't use uh, – here's the problem with CO2. If you purge out with CO2, you're apt to get like a light tingling in uh, eventually in, in, in the bottle. Um, what we use in the bar, we make a bottle of Manhattan. When we do a bottle of Manhattan, we dilute the vermouth in, in the whiskey, and it ends up being a lower proof when we're done than the vermouth was on its own, I think, or it's about, about the same. But the, the upshot is, is that it oxidizes even more in, uh, in a pre-diluted Manhattan than it does in its own bottle, and so we have to have a way to keep them from oxidizing. So all of our low-proof things like vermouth – uh, in the bottle, anything like that. Not only do we store it uh, very cold, actually a little bit below freezing, but not below its own freezing point, is we'll drop a little bit of liquid nitrogen into the bottle open. Uh, the liquid nitrogen will then rest the cap on top, and you'll see a bunch of vapor coming out of the top of the bottle that's purging out the air, and then as soon as it uh, stops uh, actively uh, pushing nitrogen out, we cap it, right? Um there are other commercial systems based on nitrogen that you can buy that are fairly cheap, like wine saver um, things, and that you can use to purge out the headspace. If you've purged the headspace out of your uh, drink and cap it, you're good to go. Here is the problem. Uh, nitrogen, I mean, we use it in liquid nitrogen form, so it's sitting on top of the drink and getting all the air out. Nitrogen itself is actually slightly um, – nitrogen is slightly uh, lighter than air. So it's going to float out of the bottle, and so you can't actually just dump liquid nitrogen into it and then uh, wait a long time and then cap it. But you can buy on the internet. You can just look it up. Uh, you can uh, buy an argon-based system. So if you look at roughly the the molecular mass, average molecular mass of air, it's about 28.97, right? Uh, so oxygen, heavier than air, you need to pur purge it out, heavier than the average air. Nitrogen, slightly lighter. Carbon dioxide, heavier. So you could actually roll carbon dioxide in there slowly and purge out the air, which is how I make uh, carbonated cocktails. But again, and that'll work. I'm just worried that you might have a little residual kind of a pringly thing. Although try it. It might work. You know, like just like, like snuff some carbon dioxide in there a couple of times to purge out the headspace and then cap it. I mean, that would technically work. But argon is a real moneymaker, rocking in at 39, 39.9 uh, um, as a molecular weight. And so it's, it's heavier enough, not quite as heavy as carbon dioxide, but much heavier than air. You can buy fairly cheap little argon cartridges and purging units uh, on the internets, on the Amazon, and you can use that to purge out uh, all of your bottles. If you want to just do it the way that you said you're doing it, 
I mean, that you have with carbon dioxide, you don't want to purchase anything extra. I'd be interested to know uh, how that works. But we, I don't do it to Aperol, by the way. Aperol is the one thing on that list that I don't really worry about. I also don't worry that much about my Dubonnet, but maybe I should. Uh, we definitely worry about Cokey Americano. We definitely worry about our Lillet. And we definitely, definitely, definitely worry about our Carpano, especially after it's been mixed with, um, with, with the booze and diluted. I'll say this. Uh, we have run tests uh, for a couple of weeks with uh, diluted uh, vermouth in bottles that have been LN purged, and I would, like I say, recommend argon or perhaps CO2, and then capped with no oxygen in them, and they are dead stable. Uh, at least under refrigeration, they're dead stable, so you can handle it, and, and it's okay. Um, especially, you said you had a bottle capper, right? Yeah, you got a bottle capper for glass bottles, boom, you're done. Uh, I'd have to remember in my head whether Carpano will accept a bottle cap, whether the Carpano bottle accepts a bottle cap. Champagne bottles accept a bottle cap, but the Carpano bottle might not accept a bottle cap. Okay, listen, I'm going to go to my second commercial break and then come back with Rob's second question. 718-497-2128, cooking issues. Every night you'll hear croon of a Russian lullaby Just a plaintive little tune when baby starts to cry Rockabye, my baby Somewhere there may be a land that's free for you and me And a Russian lullaby you're listening to Russian Lullaby by Plexophonic. to cooking issues. We have a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Dave. Uh, this is Marvin Woodhouse calling from, from Germany. Uh, I had a couple of uh, equipment questions, just uh, equipment recommendations I was looking for. So the first one uh, was for uh, what we would call in the UK a barbecue, but I think you would call in the US a grill. Correct. Yeah, don't, don't, tell a, don't tell a Southern American that uh, a barbecue is a cooking instrument because then you have to like, listen to them for half an hour about grilling versus barbecue. You, you don't want to do it. Yeah, so a charcoal grill, basically. Yeah. So we, I, I had a Weber before, uh, and, and, it, and it, was, it was okay. I had it a long time, but uh, I'm getting to, I need to get a new one, basically, because I, I moved countries and, and left the old one behind. So... Uh, Is there anything particularly that's any good, or or are they all much of a muchness? That's a good question. Uh, You know, on grills, uh, for instance, Jeffrey Steingarten hates Weber's, hates them. Uh, because uh, you can't adjust the uh, coal height effectively in them. You know what I mean? I mean, what, yeah. Weber, what Weber's are good at with that kettle shape is kind of allowing a pile of coals to radiate out to kind of either side. They're also relatively inexpensive, which is, I think, why a lot of people um, use them. And, you know, for me, I mean, like, the, the problems with grills, 
you know, I prefer like a nice heavy grate that can that can really you know, like absorb a lot of energy and then and then give it back. But a lot of it's about versatility. I always want the biggest grill I can possibly get. But the flip side of having a giant grill is that you know you basically need to fire the whole thing. Or, or you lose, lose a lot of heat. A lot of the grilling, I tend to do a lot of super high heat grilling, like very fast, especially like finishing off sous vide and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, so at any rate, like larger grills give you more versatility because if you're going to do a high-low situation or have the coals on one side and cook in the other, you have more space to do it with. But the problem is, is they tend to consume a lot of charcoal. So yeah. if you're only going to be, like how many people are you cooking for? Uh, no more than sort of, I mean, eight at the absolute max, but usually more like, but sometimes down to two. Right. Yeah. I mean, two, uh, I mean, like, that's a huge difference, right? Like cooking, grilling for eight and grilling for two is a, is a, is a giant, giant difference. Um, you know, I've never used any of the smaller, like theoretically more fuel, uh, conserving, uh, grills, like, uh, for instance, the, the egg that a lot of people seem to like. Uh, yeah, I saw those on Aki and Alex's blog. Right? Do they like them? Yeah, but uh, but they're really expensive. Yeah, I mean, how's the coal cost in in uh, like hardwood charcoal? How, is that expensive in Germany or no? No, not really. But like, I think the 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 eggs can be up to like five six hundred euros. Ah, so that, yeah. That's quite expensive for a grill. Yeah, I mean, I, I inject like you know, I've grilled on. Um, a grill is really a lot about how how you handle it. I I would go for one with a big with a nice like I like cast I like the cast iron grates. They're not necessary, but I like them a lot better than those thin wire craps. Um, and I usually go for a larger size just because it gives me more flexibility. Just be willing to suck up a lot of extra charcoal because you're going to go through a lot more charcoal than you ordinarily would. I have never used a grate that has like uh, uh, I mean a, a grill that has a really nice system for adjusting the height of the grill surface. But Bobby Flay told me once that he had one that did that, and Steingarten once told me that he had one that that did that. Um, which would obviously be useful because it would allow you to get different, yeah. different heats without having to lift the thing and shuffle the coals around, which, as everyone knows, is a messy pain in the butt. And I know it's sort of a, a dirty concept for food snobs, but like gas is. Yeah, you know what? Like I like uh, so I've used gas assists in. Uh, look, here's the other thing, right? I mean, like everybody knows that. <laughs> Coal is great, but sometimes you just want to fire the sucker up and run, right? Yeah, because it's dirty and it takes time to heat up and stuff, so... Yeah, I mean, you've used chimney starters before, though, right? Pardon? You've used a chimney starter before, right, for coal? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But it's it's just, if if it was gas, I'd use it more often, I think. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, uh, I used to have a unit a long time ago that I could go either way with, and I don't know whether I was legally allowed to go either way or whether I literally just threw an extra grate over top of the burners and went went crazy. I think it might be the latter. So that I could do – I'm a big fan of flexibility, and so you know, if you're going to use the grill more often, especially in the summertime, if you have a gas thing on it and you fire it up, I mean, the one issue with most gas burners is that they just don't have the uh, the oomph that you need, right? Yeah. And so, you know, and if you, you know, as I as I do believe, kind of the modernist cuisine mantra on uh, what's going on, which is that the flavor of grilling isn't really from the coal itself, 
but from fat dripping on said coal, uh, vaporizing and coming up, then yeah. if you have enough power in your burners, then you can do something like chuck lava rocks onto it and then use those lava rocks to get that kind of uh, feeling of the of the stuff hitting it and, and going down. I think that most people's gripe with the gas uh, grills is it just that you're not hot enough to get that kind of a, a of a thing to to happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think you're a bad person for wanting a gas grill. You know what I mean? Well, I, I prefer charcoal, but gas is just you know it, it just it's just more convenient. And then the second equipment recommendation is is my wife broke my immersion blender, which uh. isn't too bad because it was crappy. Uh. Uh, but she's she's she she said she'd buy me as kind of a combo compensation and birthday present, uh, uh, pretty much whichever one I want. Uh, what would you go for? Seeing as I don't think you've you and Dave Chang have built your new one yet. No, I haven't. Um, I look. I only have. Uh, I mean, not crappy ones, but I don't have really the the good ones. I don't have a good one either. Have uh, you tried a Bamex? Or? I was about to say the the Bamex seems to be the one that it's the only one I've heard people say that they everyone loves having an immersion blender, but I've never had anyone say that they actually liked the one that they have. The exception yeah. is the Bamex. Um, the downside of the Bamex is that it, um, it obviously the, the 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 shaft doesn't pop off of the Bamex to clean. Is kind yeah. of the one the one downside it has. The upside uh, for my uh, just vi- never having used it is that it's got a lot more clearance around the bell for um, for fluids to go in and out. And one of the main problems. Well, the first main problem with with immersion blenders is splashing in improperly sized cups with not enough liquid. The second main problem with them is cavitation around the bell in thicker products. For instance, you know, I use immersion blenders to do pancake batter. You know, stab me, but I do. You know what I mean? Uh, and um, uh, and you get a lot of cavitation issues with the standard stamped steel bells that are on most um, kind of consumer grade immersion blenders. And the yeah. and the Bamex four prong open kind of blade guard, I think, is not going to have as much cavitation problem as those. And so, if I had to go out and spend my ninety nine bucks on one, I'd probably get that. Not having okay. not having tested it, I might take the jump and get it. Is that? I mean, also, like you know, like some of the other ones. Like I happen to have a KitchenAid now, and I don't hate it, but I don't love it. It came with a bunch of other attachments, which I don't even know where they are. I've never used them. Yeah, you know they're, I mean? they're they're more expensive over here. So like the the, the price difference between a Bamix and a KitchenAid, there really isn't going to be one when you buy it here. So really, yeah, and that little chopper that they sell to me is fundamentally useless. Uh, the 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 whisk. Is fundamentally useless. Have you ever seen someone use one of those? Nothing looks more ridiculous than using that whisk on the end of an immersion blender. It's crazy. No. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. It's, it makes no sense. And eventually, the the um, eventually that the connection starts going wonky where it clicks in, and so now mine makes awful grinding noises when I when I when I'm using it. So all said, I do like being able it makes makes me allow allow me to be a lot lazier to just pop off the end of the stick and put it into water so I'm not going to lie to you and say that that is not a benefit but I might go with the Bamex uh, the next time around. Roboku makes an incredibly expensive commercial one where the actual bell pops off to clean which seems like it would be nice but uh, I believe Bamex also has the feature that you can remove the blade, is that true? 
I think so, yeah. Yeah, that seems like it's going to be a bad idea because it seems like uh, something's going to break there. But the biggest downfall, even with the removable stem uh, immersion blenders, is trying to clean underneath that blade, which is a yeah. huge hassle. And so the ability to remove that blade, uh, assuming that it, it's not a failure point for the mechanism, which obviously it has a possibility of being, it would be a huge boon to cleaning. I detest cleaning out the uh, bottom of the blades of, uh, of immersion blenders. And I had one equipment recommendation for you. Uh, you, you mentioned tablets, and, and that's what I do for a living. So if you're looking for a small-scale tablet press, the, the, the thing you want is called a Riva, R-I-V-A, mini press. Write that down, Stas. You got that? Mm-hmm. R-I-V-A, mini press? Uh, you'll, uh, the probably, they're quite expensive. They're, they're about 10 grand, 20 grand new. But if you can pick one up from a pharmaceutical company... Uh, sort of from an auction, right? Uh, you, you probably get one for way less than that because there's pharmaceutical companies going out of business left, right, and center. So, uh, and if you get one, it will probably be pretty clean uh, so, it's a because they company. they have to have logbooks and stuff for when you're using them to produce products. So I wouldn't worry too much in terms of uh, too much in terms of contamination as long as you can kind of get it all visibly clean uh, and then and then wipe you know clean it with a uh, some some solvent, uh, something like uh, isopropyl alcohol or or something like that. Uh, you'll probably not be too bad to go. And how big is it? Dishwasher size? Smaller? Uh, it's probably about the size of uh, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of something about the right size. Uh, uh, probably the size of a floor standing Apple Mac. Oh, nice. That's, that's totally doable. So it's, it's, a, it's a benchtop unit. It's a single station press, but it's, it's a really, really nice piece of kit there. Reaver is an Argentinian company, but they're, they're one of the standard sort of research and development tablet presses. So, like, it's, it's not really, really fast or anything, but you, you, it's, it's because you only need the one punch. It's it's pretty versatile in terms of you don't have to buy stacks and stacks of the the tooling for it. You only need one set. Nice, I appreciate that. Hey, you weren't the you you didn't call in with the question about trying to get your kids to eat things, did you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> okay, listen, you, this is a lucky day that you called in. We have someone who has responded a very long email. I think uh, we're going to get Jack to read the response. Correct. Well. We, I might have to substitute. I, I mean, I can't really fill Jack's shoes, but I have I have the email here. All right, so Joe, the front. What's the name of your band, Joe? Oh, it's called Big Ups. All right, so he's a front man. I'm sure he can do a good read job. Joe's going to read the response to your question on how to get your kids to eat stuff from Geek Goddess. Go, Joe. Dear Dave and Nastasha, the Hammer. I have all kinds of food issues myself, and I was thinking of that family in Germany whose kids have lost their minds and will only eat pasta. Has said father tried shurimi? You know that delightful crab-like seafood product that serious chefs loves to hate? Well, my brother, master of picky eaters, I, of course, would eat anything anyway. Uh, My mother, or my brother, was getting desperate and found the stuff and brought it home. He got to it before she even had a chance to feed it to him and because... and became the default option for an I-won't-eat-anything day. So have you tried the shurimi? Will your kids eat the surimi? What surimi? So it's that cra- it's that it's imitation, like imitation crab, crab stuff. yeah. It's it's what? Imitation crab product? 
Okay, how do you spell it? Uh, S-U-R-I-M-I. And it really, it's the stuff that they put in fake California rolls and whatnot. I mean, it is... Oh, like crab stick type shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I agree. Look, it is it is like a crazy like processed food stuff, and then and it's like you know uh, they evaluate various fish products for their ability to be pressed into cerebi because it's all about you bleach out any sort of natural flavor it has, and then you turn them into kind of uniform sticklets. Uh, okay, but uh, would your kids uh, would your kids like that? Maybe that was that was her I don't first. Know. They might not dig the texture. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we can we can try we can try it. She also so. she also suggested string cheese. String cheese. String cheese. String cheese. We already do. Yeah, but and then insulted the quality of pizza that you're able to obtain in Germany. I believe she insulted the quality of pizza. Is that true, Joe? Uh, <laughs> yes, that she definitely did. Yeah, in fact, condolences. Said, yes, condolences to you for your like. What was the next one? Um, then there's a, a quinoa pasta. Oh yeah, um, she said that your kids might not like the quinoa because of the uh, the, the the taste of the quinoa. Oh. That's, that's- that's kind of a bit worthy for our family. Yeah, there's a. Cor- she also recommends corn-based pasta, right? Um, I'm just kind of scanning through here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, corn. she says that there's uh, that it does contain corn, yeah, or something. I would try. Yeah, yeah, it contains corn. corn yeah. I've had corn-based pasta. It is yeah. not pasta, but it tastes okay actually. It's, okay. It's like it like rice pasta is horrible. Uh, corn pasta is like I say, it's not pasta, but it's uh, it's it's okay. But yeah, you're trying to get away from the the kind of boiled starch in general, right? <laughs> yeah. Like not just you don't want to just switch the boiled starch, right? In which case, I could just you know make you make soba or something like that. Which I've been work I'm working on the soba. I don't know if I mentioned that on the air, but I've been working on the soba problem. Uh, but uh, yeah, hopefully you're trying to switch to it. She had a, another kind of a loonier thing towards the end, didn't she? Uh, uh yes. Um, well. There's something about kangaroo on here. Oh yeah, she's been cooking kangaroo meat. Maybe, maybe your maybe your kids can eat some Joey. <laughs> she, she's like, I don't know. Yeah. This, is, this is an uh, incredible email, by the way. It is several pages. I think um, we should just put that email. We're gonna put that. Can we put that email, Joe, up just as a response on the Heritage Radio site as a response? Yeah, I, can, I have to check with the higher ups, but I don't see why not. It's it's long, and anyway, you can read her entire response. Yeah. You can read her entire response there. I'm not sure. Okay. Look, if your kids are having trouble eating other things, I'm not sure kangaroo is going to be the. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, know, I'm just, I think that's the answer. I, 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 I mean, hey, kids, remember that cute animal that you like? Here it is. Eat it. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Like, even my kids, who will eat almost nothing but will try weird stuff and don't mind like dead animals, I think they might pause with the kangaroo. Yeah, I think I, we, we haven't really got to the link between furry things and, and what's on the plate yet. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's yeah. a tough one. Well, well, I, you know, I tend to we'll reinforce it. I tend to reinforce moment. it with my kids. I'm like, "Hey, eat your hamburger. A cow died for that." And they're like, <laughs> and then but then it comes and bites me on the butt because they're like, "Daddy, did a cow die for my hamburger?" Yes, a cow <laughs> died for hamburger. Like, did it? Does a cat? Does any animal have to die for the pasta? No, no animal has to die for the pasta. So yeah, yeah, you have to keep on going on. So like once you make a statement like that, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? Or at least for the first, you know, five years, or whatever. Anyway. So we're going to try and post this on the web, and uh, we hope that helps. And thanks for the tablet press uh, cool. info. All right. All righty. I got one more that I'm going to handle. Rob's second question before on my way out. He says, uh, also, how do you make shelf-stable maraschino style or bourbon cherries? All the recipes I call uh, for uh, refrigerated storage for a period of weeks, and I want to keep them in a, at cellar temperatures for up to a year. Rob Trapaz. Okay. First of all, uh, Toby Cicchini, the bartender, like uh, better known as the bartender who kind of you know 
made the Cosmo the drink. Um, also writes for the New York Times. Nice gent. He uh, has been making uh, cherries for uh, many, many a year. And his recommendations are that you, uh, first of all, you need a high-proof uh, liquor. If you want it to last a long time, you got to use a high-proof liquor. But second of all, it's the type of cherry you use. He tried various different types of cherry. He happens to have, uh, I think, Morellos. I'm not sure. Some type of sour cherry in, in, his, uh, in his garden. And those are the ones that he uses or he sources. Uh, he says he's tried to do his cherries with... With, uh, sweet cherries and that they're insipid, useless um, things. I will tell you this. Uh, back before I was allergic to cherries when I could test these things, I had a cherry once that was uh, 50 or 60 years old that had been stored in um, like almost straight, like super high proof uh, alcohol that um, my stepfather's grandfather kept in the basement uh, in, in Connecticut. And they were put up uh, in, the, in the 20s and I was eating them in the, in the 90s. Uh, 80s or 90s and they were still good that number of years later and the secret I think is the high proof ethanol now if you want to use a little bit of technology to make sure that you're going to be okay uh, his secret was not don't remove the uh, I mean whatever it's like old Italian wives tale but don't remove the stem if you remove the stem it goes mushy it turns to crap you got to leave the stem in that's the secret that's what they used to say not with that accent though because they're from Boston but I can't do a Boston accent anyways uh but you might want to try if you uh, do want to remove the stem or whatever. You might, and the issue with it is I don't know how long you need to soak it because um, it's very hard to get um, things to permeate the uh, cell walls. I mean the uh, skin of things like cherries. But you might try a soak in Novo Shape pectin methylesterase and a little bit of calcium. Um, that enzyme, along with calcium, will firm up the fruit immensely. And I've used that enzyme to uh, make, for instance, uh, raspberries that you could boil without them breaking. Uh, so it really does firm up cell walls quite a bit. Um, and it's not readily available, but uh, you know it is available. It's called Novo Shape is the brand name uh, from um, Novozymes, and it's a pectin methyl esterase. Uh, now, so I don't know how long it would take to soak through a cherry. We're going to run some tests ourselves at the bar, hopefully, if we can get around to it. Um, but it definitely w- works on other things. Then high-proof ethanol, and you might want to dope a tiny bit of calcium into that high-proof ethanol if you can. It's not going to be very soluble because calcium will help, help also cross-link the pectin and keep those suckers uh, nice and, uh, you know, not have them break down and turn to mush. Good luck with it. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Fishes, fishes, fuck.